Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. We are in week three uh, of our series, Salt and Light Living, and we're continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount that we began a while ago with the Blessed series as we looked at the Beatitudes. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at what does it mean to be salt and light? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5? You see, the Beatitudes were all about the character of, of, of those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, those that are believers in Jesus Christ, there is a certain character that we ought to have formed within us, and the character of those areas, those attitudes that are the beatitudes that are about what happens on the inside. Then we talked about salt and light, and salt and light is all about the influence that we carry as believers in Jesus Christ, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And uh, and Jesus calls us to have that kind of an influence, and so we have to have the character in order for us to have the influence. And now what we're going to turn to is a topic that talks a little bit about righteousness. What is righteousness? In fact, at the end of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, when he's talking about you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may, look at this, see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In fact, the way in which we live, the deeds, the good deeds, the things that we do are are so that others may see those deeds, but not so they can elevate and say, oh, what a good person you are, how wonderful you are, but rather that our heavenly Father who is living in us might be glorified. Deeds are one of those things that as we look at, what does it mean to do a good deed? Does a good deed mean righteousness? And as we dive into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, we find that he begins with some practical things, and when it comes to righteousness, some practical areas of righteousness. Practical areas of righteousness. Is righteousness simply being a good person? Is righteousness simply doing good deeds? Or is there another way in which we are to understand this idea of righteousness? In fact, when it comes to representing the kingdom of God, when it comes to representing Jesus Christ and interacting with God's law, oftentimes I find that there are two visions to life's approach in in approaching God's law or God's word or God's standard for living or standard of righteousness. In fact, one of them would be what we'd call a legalistic view of righteousness, a legalistic interpretation of God's law, which is kind of a a firm uh, gripped light uh, a firm, tight-gripped understanding of how we interact with God's law and we interact with one another. In fact, the other is a minimalistic interpretation of God's law. That is when we take bits and pieces, however we'd like to fit it together. I like this, but I don't like this. And I'll do this, but I don't know that this applies. Maybe that part doesn't apply. That did then, but it doesn't now. And you can, people take a minimalistic approach where we like this of God's word and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we come up with our own way. What is the right way 
of righteousness. To illustrate this a little bit, uh, I think that there are two disciples that Jesus had called to follow him that kind of give us two areas or two parts of the spectrum of how they might have interpreted this when they sat with Jesus and he began to teach them and how they might understand this. The first guy is a guy by the name of Matthew. You might also find that, that his name is Levi. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7, he's the one that wrote the gospel. He's the author of the gospel of Matthew and, the, and a follower of Jesus Christ. And just days or, or weeks before Jesus brought his disciples together to teach this Sermon on the Mount, where do we find Matthew? Matthew we find at a tax collector's booth. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, even today, we don't like the IRS, but uh, even back then, it was even more because tax collectors were considered people that were of the worst. They were in their own category, the tax collectors and the sinners. (laughs) They were so bad, they had their own category. Why? Because tax collectors were those that oftentimes compromised uh, instead of hanging on to their, 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 their faith and their heritage uh, as, as a Jewish person, as a, a citizen of Israel. Those who, who, again, would honor God and honor God's law, they looked at the Romans who were coming in and they said, well, you know what? If I can't beat them, I better join them. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, right? When in Rome might have been, might have been his kind of standard of thinking. Don't rock the boat, baby. And so oftentimes what tax collectors would do is they wouldn't just collect the tax that Rome had imposed, but they would collect a lot more because that's how they earned their income. And so they were looked at as shady people. They were looked at as people who were deceptive and people who didn't honor the law of God. Maybe a minimalistic kind of approach to the law of God. In fact, when we take a look at this kind of minimalistic approach, what we see is in the kingdom of God, there are people like Matthew that Jesus says, the kingdom of God is for you. I want you to follow me. But then on the other side, there's another disciple of Jesus, and we'll call his name is Simon, and he comes with a title, Simon the Zealot. We're not talking about Simon Peter or another Simon. Whenever we see him, and we don't know much about him in Scripture, but every time they mention this Simon, he is known as Simon the Zealot. Well, what is a zealot? Zealot is not his last name. He's not Simon Zealot. He's Simon the Zealot. It's a, it's a title trying to quantify his character, trying to quantify who he is. He may have belonged to a Jewish sect that was known as the Zealots that were bent on bringing about revolution and looking for a Messiah to violently overthrow Rome. So their idea was violence. They said, you know what? We've got to overthrow Rome. We are zealous for the law. And the only way that we're going to do that is if we take up what God has said and we become the people of God and we rise up violently against those who do not agree against the Romans who are oppressing us. On another side, even if he wasn't a part of that group, the zealots were oftentimes people who were very zealous for the law or zealous for the teachings of Jesus. They may have been a part of a sect known as the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes, or maybe they they weren't a part of that group, but they were still very zealous for the law. We know that the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, when they called him Saul, he was very zealous for the Lord. He was very zealous for the Lord. So in all likelihood, what we see is, is that, that, that Simon, who, who is known as Simon the Zealot, would have been someone who was zealous for obedience to God's law and that God's kingdom came through being very obedient and zealous for the law of God. So we have two people that have been invited into discipleship who are on two sides of the coin, 
who are on two sides, very opposite sides of how to follow God's law, whether minimalistically or whether very legalistically and, and very zealous. So where does Jesus line up in the midst of this? How would Jesus teach his disciples to embody the kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness? Will Jesus side with Simon? Being very legalistic, will he side with, with, uh, uh, with Matthew in terms of more of a, a licentious approach to the interpretation of God's law, living very loose interpretation, or perhaps Jesus would talk about a different way to represent and embody his kingdom and righteousness within the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus say? Let's jump into the passage today in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And it's here that we're going to see three truths about righteousness. Three truths about righteousness. The first truth is simply this. Jesus confronts sin. Jesus confronts sin. Look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, I'm not doing away with the law of God. I'm not doing away with the laws that you find, the Ten Commandments and the laws that you find. I'm not doing away with them. I have actually come to fulfill them. For truly I tell you that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Until everything not the least little stroke. If you know anything about the Hebrew language, then you know that, there are, that every little stroke means something within a character within the Hebrew language. Every little stroke, every little, every little part of it, dot the I, cross the T, we might say today. Jesus says there not be a, an I that is, goes undotted or a T that goes uncrossed. So when you're looking at this, as Jesus is teaching this, I can see Simon the Zealot kind of straightening up and looking across the way over at Matthew and others and saying, see, see, we got to be zealous for the law. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus said, listen, we got to follow it. We gotta, and I can see him kind of rising up a little bit. But you have to understand a little something about Jesus because Jesus isn't about being, being uh, uh, in this way of being legalistic, and he's not a way in terms of being a minimalistic uh, part of this. In fact, oftentimes Jesus was accused of being minimalistic. In fact, if you take a look in, in Scripture, in the Gospel stories, you see that Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of eating with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, oftentimes he was called a partier and a drunkard. He was accused of breaking the Sabbath laws and, and healing people on the Sabbath. And the religious authorities and the religious elites say, how can you heal people on the Sabbath? We've got to keep the Sabbath holy. Jesus, you're not taking the right approach to the law. And Jesus responds to this criticism that he has a relaxed interpretation of God's law, again in verse 17, by saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's almost like him saying that the word of God is not going to pass away until pigs fly. The truth is, Jesus delights in the law of God. In fact, Psalm chapter 1, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates on it day and night. So the vision that Jesus has and that we ought to have is we ought to delight in the law of the Lord. 
We ought to delight in the law of the Lord. When it comes to to righteousness, all our hopes and desires that Jesus has is that we would begin to delight in the law of the Lord as he delights in the law of the Lord. And so again, some of the Jesus' disciples like Simon the Zealot might have been feeling very good about themselves right now. And, and, and they might have been taking this approach and saying, hey, did you hear him? Did you hear what he said? He said, we, he didn't come to abolish it. We've got to follow. This is the kind of zealousness that I've been talking about. And yet at the same time, you might find Matthew over in the other with his head down and, and kind of feeling a little bit of shame and guilt, and maybe he feels a little bit like an outcast. Maybe he doesn't feel like he fits in as a disciple, but Jesus says, hold on a second, I'm not just siding with the legalist here. Let me identify with the minimalist here and say this about the kingdom of heaven in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of of heaven. Now you might say, Jesus, you're taking a very radical legalistic approach. No, Jesus is about to teach us something, and that is whether you are the most zealous for the law of the Lord, or whether you are the most person who is the most minimalistic and finds yourself struggling to even obey one part of the law of God. It doesn't matter. Every one of us are sinners unless our righteousness goes beyond that of the most religious people of his day. Those that everybody would have looked at as the standard, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, unless you, the teachers of the law, unless you, your righteousness surpasses theirs. That's an unimaginable thought. Surpasses that? How are we supposed to surpass that? How are we supposed to do that, Jesus? Jesus is saying, unless you're better than them, you don't have a shot of inheriting the kingdom of heaven. The problem is, is that the disciples are just like us. When it comes to who they are and their quality, we've already looked at, at Matthew and Simon, but the rest of his followers, many of them just a bunch of fishermen, uneducated, they weren't the, the best of the best. And yet Jesus had invited them to follow him, and he's about to teach them something about righteousness, and that is that a righteousness is not a righteousness that is simply on our own and our own ability to be perfect because we are unable to do that. How many of you would say amen? We are simply unable We are simply unable on our own. Jesus is confronting sin. He's confronting the sin of those that would take a minimalistic approach and that would say, it's all grace. Forget about the Old Testament. You don't have to follow it. Forget about the law. There's a new law. It's the law of grace. Jesus would say, hold up, hold up just a moment. That's not necessarily true. And those who would say, well, you've got, in order for you to inherit the kingdom, you've got to be perfect, and you've got to obey, and you've got to be zealous, he would say, hold up, hold up, hold up, because unless you're kind of outside righteousness, unless it surpasses that of the most religious of the day, it doesn't measure up. What Jesus is doing is, is getting us to measure ourselves, not against the standard of others around us, but the standard of his word and his law. He's not doing away with it, but rather he's going to teach us how we begin to live in light of this kingdom standard. What's he doing? He's telling us, he's confronting both of these areas and saying, listen, 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 I've got a better way to understand righteousness. 
Now imagine, we might, we might look at it like this, as, as Jesus is confronting these kinds of areas, we look at these systems and, and, uh, and we might default to one or the other. Maybe you find yourself, when it comes to the law of God, defaulting to, I'm just going to rely on grace and, and, and I, I don't necessarily have to fully obey all the time, I, but the grace of God will cover me. Or maybe you, I've got to, you know, I got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to do these good deeds and I've got to follow. Jesus is saying, whoa, hold up a minute, hold up a minute. And what, it, what he's trying to do in terms of these ideas of righteousness is, is kind of like if you've ever seen a picture of an iceberg. How many of you have seen a picture of an iceberg? What you see in a picture of the iceberg is oftentimes you only see the top half. If, you, if you're not under the water, you're only seeing the top half. It's why we, we hear phrases like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And as big as the tip might be, or as small as the tip might be, the problem is not what you see on the outside. The problem is what's happening underneath. And underneath an iceberg is something that is way larger than what anybody sees. It's one of the reasons why the Titanic uh, ended up crashing and, and, and sinking, right? Because it hit the iceberg. You might have saw the tip, but it didn't realize how big the mass of the iceberg was underneath. And every one of us oftentimes just wants to simply treat righteousness as the external and that which is above, those things that are just above. And Jesus is saying, you know what, that kind of righteousness, that's just the tip. The problem is we've got to deal with the larger thing, the larger problem that's underneath. That's underneath. And when it comes to righteousness, what is visible on the outside is not all there is. Jesus knows there's just so much more beneath the surface of our hearts. In fact, A.J. Jacobs, an agnostic senior editor for Esquire magazine, decided to spend the entire uh, year trying to be completely obedient to every command of the Bible. In 2007, he wrote a book that's, that's entitled this, The Year of Living Biblically, The Year of Living Biblically. And uh, after he got in his book, this is what he said about something that he learned. He said, one thing I learned is how much I sinned. That was a little disturbing, But once you start to pay attention to the amount of time that you lie and gossip and covet and even steal, he said, I was taken aback. It was a real eye-opener. Aren't those profound words from an agnostic? Try to live biblically. And what you find is is that that no matter how hard you might try, you come up short. And, and that's the recognition that in response, that's why grace is so important. That's why we begin to live in grace. It's not to do away with the law, but it's rather to begin to understand God's love and His mercy to us. And the first place that we have to start, no matter where we are or who we are, is to recognize that Jesus confronts sin, that we don't measure up to the law. But secondly, there's hope. Jesus forgives sinners, friends. Jesus forgives sinners. Jesus confronts us in our sin as an act of grace, but then he forgives us as sinners. Not just confronts, but forgives us. Look at verse 17. Do not think, again, that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but there's a key word here, to fulfill them. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law? What does it mean that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets? What is, how is he a fulfillment of those things? Well, number one, he fulfills the demands of the law. He fulfills the demands 
of the law. In other words, how does he do that? He fulfills the demands of the law by the way in which he lived and also through his death and resurrection. So let's start by the way in which he lived. How did Jesus live his life? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet did not sin. The first area that Jesus began to fulfill the law was that he lived every letter of the law perfectly. Jesus lived without sin. So what you and I are unable to do, Jesus did. He fulfilled the demands of the law through his his life, through the way that he lived. But that's incomplete without the second half. And the second part of this, he also fulfilled the demands of the law through his death and his resurrection. In fact, what we see is Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says that he took the punishment for our sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. You see, the law's demand was pretty simple, and that is keep it or die. And we know that Jesus kept it. But we also know that you and I don't. Jesus confronts that. He confronts the fact that we are sinners, that we were unable to obey the law. We're unable to do that. Therefore, we deserve the punishment that comes from that from a holy and righteous judge. Because he confronts sin, because we are sinners, we have to pay the price. But here's the problem. And when I say pay the price, this is the question that oftentimes we get asked. If you go into heaven and you have to stand before the judge of all the earth and he says, why should should you receive eternal life? What's the answer that you're going to give? Anything short of Jesus Christ died for me and the only way that I am am even able to be in eternity with you is because of what Jesus Christ did for me fall short of what the Bible says. You can't go in and stand before God and say, well, I obeyed the law most of the time. Most of the time I didn't lie. Most of the time I didn't cheat. Most of the time I didn't gossip. Most of the time I didn't commit adultery. I, I, I didn't really ever murder anybody, you know, so I, I, I didn't do that. Maybe I struggled a little bit with hate, but you know, I've, I've, been, a, I've been a pretty good person. That falls short. That's not what the law demanded. The law demanded perfection. The law demanded that we follow it and that we never fall short of the glory of God. But Scripture tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. Scripture tells us that even our righteous acts are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah. So that's the problem that we have. The problem that we have is we were unable to, but Jesus Christ did what we were unable to do. Not only did he live a perfect and sin, uh, sinless life, but also he took on the curse. He took on the punishment that you and I deserve. Cursed is everyone who hung on a pole, who hung on the cross. Jesus Christ fulfilled the demands of the law through his death and through his resurrection. He also fulfilled the demands of the law and fulfilled the Old Testament, or excuse me, fulfilled the the Scriptures by fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. In fact, after his resurrection, he is walking with a couple of his disciples. He appears to them and comes up behind them on a road called Emmaus. They were on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking about the things that had happened, that Jesus had died, and a couple of uh, his followers said that the tomb was empty, and they said that they had angels appear to them, and we, we don't know what to make of all of this. 
And this is what the scriptures tell us. Luke 24, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So beginning with Genesis and working his way through, Jesus began to point out all the different areas that were pointing to him in the Old Testament. So you can't just do away with the Old Testament. You can't do away with the law and say, well, we don't have to follow that anymore. We're New Testament people. No, no, no. The Old Testament helps you understand who Jesus is because everything points to him. It is one big story that points to Jesus and his redemption that points to the gospel. You don't just throw that out. In fact, in John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus said this, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me, excuse me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. How often we don't go to Jesus for life. How often we go to so many other sources to find what Jesus has invited us to find in him. James Voice writes this, Voice, it it states, as plainly as it can be stated, if you reject the Bible, you reject Jesus Christ. If you believe the Bible, you accept him. He's the subject, he's the subject of it. Friends, the whole body, the whole Bible is about Jesus. We can't just take one piece and another piece and I like this, but I don't like this. If there are certain things that you don't like about Scripture, you need to dig in a little deeper and find out why it's there because it's there for a reason. It reflects Jesus Christ himself. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The third way in which he fulfilled these things is he revealed the true meaning of the law. And it's interesting, the phrase that Jesus uses again and again, he uses this phrase, and we're going to see it in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount as we move forward. He says, but I say to you, but I say to you. What he was doing here is he's saying, this is what you've heard. This is what you've been taught. This is the way you've understood it. But I say to you, but I say to you. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to reveal to you what this truly means. What is this truly about? J. A. Bengal points out that whereas the prophets say, thus saith the Lord, and later on the, the, the apostles would say, it is written, Jesus is the only one that says, but I tell you. <laughs> but I tell you. Jesus reveals what it's all about. John Stott writes this, his purpose was not to change the law, still less to annul it, but to reveal the full depth and meaning that it was intended to hold. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to know who Jesus is, and you want to know exactly what kind of righteousness it is, you have to begin to listen to what Jesus says when he reveals. We, We dig in and we say, Jesus, reveal to me through your Holy Spirit what your word says. Jesus revealed the true meaning of the law, which had to do with heart and motivations, not just outward behavior. It's not about just following religious things and doing religious things on the outside. It is really about a transformed heart on the inside. 
The Old Testament prophets would call people back to holiness. They would call people back to keeping the law over and over and over and over again. And yet they would fail and fail and fail. But the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about a day that was coming. And remember, Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament prophesied about what was coming. And this is what he said about the hearts of men and women. He said, I'm going to take my law, but I'm not going to write it on the the Ten Commandments like the stone. I'm not going to write it on stone. I'm not going to write it on tablets. He says this, I'm going to write it on your hearts. Look at this, Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, look at this, within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, Jesus confronts our sin, but Jesus forgives our sin, and Jesus begins to teach us righteousness that is not simply a way in which we earn favor with God, but rather a righteousness that comes on the inside when he begins to put his law within us. And that's what happens when we are born again. That's what happens when we surrender our lives over to Jesus. His Holy Spirit comes in and he begins to transform us from the inside out, writing his very law on our heart. And that's the third truth about righteousness. Jesus transforms our heart. I'm going to take my law and I'm going to put it on your heart. I'm going to write it on your heart. I didn't come to abolish it. No, what I came to do was to fulfill it. And by fulfilling it, I'm going to begin to transform your heart by putting my word and my desires and my character. I'm going to transform you so that you are like me from the inside out. You're me from the inside out. You, you, it's not about willpower. It's about the Spirit's power. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that Paul says lives in you and I. That we have, we have the Spirit living in, in us and as we are close, as we begin to, to, to draw near to Jesus, He transforms us from the inside out so that we begin to live as kingdom citizens and, and walk as kings of citizens, not from an outside behavior, but more from what's happening inside our hearts. Paul wrote this in Romans 8, 3, and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So the Spirit, through the Spirit of God, our hearts were transformed and righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. Again, we can walk in the righteous power of the Holy Spirit. You see, in Christ, what was once an external standard has now become an internal reality. In Christ, what was once rebellion now becomes instinct. Walter Brigman says it this way, obeying will be as normal and readily accepted as breathing and eating. How many would love it if that was the case? That's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. That our lives just become a natural instinct of who we have living inside of us. 
Jesus Christ. Christianity without sanctification, friends, is, not Christi- is a Christianity without Christ. Christianity without sanctification is a Christianity without Christ. Christ fulfilled the law that we might be transformed, that we might reflect the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. One summer, uh, a family went on an Alaskan cruise. I'm going to end with this illustration, and we're going to transition to communion. The family went on an Alaskan cruise. They enjoyed a great vacation uh, family deal that they had. The dad came home, and he had a particular observation that he had made that impressed him when he was in Alaska and on this. He was impressed in the time that they had gone. He noticed that the flowers in Alaska were absolutely huge. In fact, they had these pansies that were just absolutely huge, daylilies and impatience and, and flowers. They, he noticed they were just, they were immense. They were bigger than he'd ever seen. Even the dandelions, he said, stood two feet tall above the grass. The flowers were six inches across, and he wondered, what kind of fertilizer did these Alaskans use in order to get these flowers that look so big? And so he decided to ask, and, and, and what he found out when he asked, he said, what kind of fertilizer do they use? And he said, None. They said, none, none. He said, what do you mean none? These flowers are huge. And they said this, nearly 20 hours of sunlight. That's the answer. With so much exposure to sunlight, anything would grow bigger and stronger. Friends, the principle applies to you and I. If you want to reflect who Jesus is, if you want to be more like Jesus, if you want to live righteously as Jesus calls us to live, then it means that we've got to spend more time in the sun. We've got to spend S-O-N, not S-U-N. We got to spend more time in the sun. We've got to spend more time with Jesus because the more you spend with Jesus, the more you become like him. It no longer is something that is an effort that you have to try and, oh, I got to do this. It becomes something that becomes who you are because he transforms you by his Holy Spirit. And as you are transformed, it's like, it's like breathing. It's like eating. It's just something that becomes naturally because it's who you are. It's who you are. So friends, today Jesus invites us to forgiveness. Jesus invites us to transformation. Jesus invites us to take on his righteousness today and to begin to live in such a way that the fulfillment of who Jesus Christ is is something that is seen in our lives as kingdom citizens. So friends, I just want to ask for a moment today. How have you taken an approach to the law of the Lord? How have you taken an approach to the scriptures? Do you take a legalistic approach where you're just all effort and and I'm going to make it happen and there's no joy in your salvation? Or maybe you take a minimalistic approach and maybe you take a little bit here, a little bit there and you just kind of take the idea, well, I'll do this and then I'll just ask for grace and forgiveness later. Both of those are wrong. Both of those are wrong. And Jesus confronts that. And he says to us today, I want to, I want to forgive your sin and I want to transform your heart so that I can transform you from the inside out and you can experience how to live naturally in my righteousness. You can begin to live naturally in my righteousness because of your whole, my Holy Spirit that lives within you. So today, is there anyone that needs forgiveness? Is there anyone 
that needs Jesus Christ today? Is there anyone that needs his blood today? Is there anyone, maybe you're watching online and you say, you know what, I need to receive Christ into my life. I need his forgiveness today. Let's bow our heads in this moment. And I just want to invite you right now, if you would say, you know what, that's me. I need, I need forgiveness. I need salvation today. I need Jesus Christ. I need his forgiveness of sin today in my life. And I need his righteousness in my life. Will you just slip up your hand right now? Will you just let us know if you're watching online? Yeah, I need his righteousness. Amen. 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 Come on, will you just pray with me right now? And let's just invite Jesus. Let's ask him for his forgiveness and his grace today and ask him to transform our hearts and our lives. Dear Jesus, we thank you today for your amazing love. We thank you today for your forgiveness. Thank you today for taking on the punishment that we deserve. We confess our sin to you right now. We confess, Lord, we are sinners and we need your righteousness. We need your salvation. We need your forgiveness. So we invite you into our lives right now and we ask you to forgive us of our sin and transform us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. That you would come, Lord Jesus, inside of us and that you would begin to help us to live righteously for you. We thank you, Lord, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened by God's Word. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, please visit PainesvilleAG.com.